0: Good to see you tonight. Let's turn in our Bibles over to Romans chapter 15. Finished Romans 14 last week just by going late and everything else, but I wanted to finish it. Romans 14 was dealing with, and we spent a few weeks on it, these issues that the Bible just doesn't say specifically, a Christian can do this or you can't do it. And so how you deal with those sorts of things, issues like, for us, it might be drinking or gambling or watching the UFC or, you know, whatever. You know, things that you can't go, okay, here's a verse. But it seems like Christians are always fighting about whether or not it's okay to do this or that. And, and Paul acknowledges that it's a, there's a real issue there. And he said, certainly, um, we need to be careful not to hurt our brothers and sisters. We need to be careful not to flaunt our liberty, and just because we know something's okay, we don't need to rub someone else's nose in it. At the same time, we shouldn't be judging others who see things differently than we do. The bottom line of the whole thing is he was just going, quit judging each other, quit picking each other apart. He said, man, if I thought somebody was going to lose their salvation over it, I wouldn't, I'd give up eating meat completely if that's what it took. Um, and we should all be focused on what's going to get people saved, what is it that's going to give us a good testimony, not just arguing about whether we should do something or or we shouldn't. It's, It's about the gospel, ultimately. It's about people's eternal souls. Now, in chapter 15, he kind of springs from that and now begins to refocus on some of the generalities that that came up in chapter 14 and so kind of flows into this next section and and then ultimately goes into the whole discussion about glorifying God and that that's what matters. But we'll pick up with uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 1. He says, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. So, Hey, if you're strong, don't push that on other people. Don't take advantage of other people and flaunt the fact that, oh, you know, what's wrong with you? You're weak. I'm strong. Come on, we need to put up with each other. We need to support each other. Now, we could sit and argue all day long on some of these issues over what's strong and what's weak. You could say, okay, are you strong because you do something, or are you strong because you don't do it? And, you know, you could have that discussion, and everyone would have their own opinions. You know, you, you may feel like, you know what, I don't go to movies, because I just know how bad that is, and I'm strong enough to, to not go. You may be someone who says, I love movies and they don't affect me in an adverse way, and so I'm the strong one, and you're weak if you don't go to movies. Well, it doesn't matter who's strong and who's weak. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, that your position is the strong one, and we'll all agree to that. So put up with other people's weakness. Don't be dividing over issues that involve how to apply the principles of Scripture in terms of your um, everyday ethical decisions, and then it really doesn't matter who's strong and who's weak. You can. The truth is, we're all weak in some areas, strong in other areas, and maybe until we get to heaven, we won't know which areas we were strong in and which we were weak in. So the whole point is: strong people, weak people, whatever side you're on in these areas of scruples. Put up with each other. Accept each other. Don't just please yourself. Don't just make you the center of the universe. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. That great principle that what you really ought to be doing is trying to please others. Trying to bless others, trying to edify others. So is what you're saying and how you're treating people something that is building others up, or is it something that is tearing others down? It's pretty easy to tell. When someone leaves your presence, do they feel better or do they feel worse? Do they feel encouraged and uplifted, or do they feel kind of put down and rejected or exhausted from having to deal with your baggage. And so he goes, look, just just be kind to each other, build each other up, be encouraging people. Please your neighbor for his good, do things that will cause him to be pleased, that will call, cause her to be pleased. And we should all it's a good definition of love, really. It's also a good definition of what Christianity ought to be about is, what can we do to please others? What can we do to bless others? And you could discuss this in a hundred different areas, but it all comes down to the same. Are you trying to please yourself? Or are you trying to please others? And the real blessing in life is when you live your life to bless others. To, cause, to make things better for them, and to build them up, and to edify them. Verse 3, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So he says, think about Jesus. If anyone ever had a, had a right to say he was right, if anyone ever had a right to say my position is the correct one, Jesus did because everything he wanted was right. He was perfect. He was God. And yet it gives this example and quotes the scripture that shows that Jesus took all of our sins on himself in the atonement. He, you know, bore our sins in his body on the cross. Or as, as Isaiah said, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the implication is, look, he put up with us everything that we ever did wrong. So can you put up with each other a little bit? Can you be a bit unselfish? Can you be a little considerate? Can you be nice to people, even if you think they don't deserve it? If we call ourselves Christians, I mean, so central to the nature of Christ was that day when he took our sins on himself. So what are we willing to bear for each other? Oh, I know that there may be things about me that just disgust you, but can you bear with me? I know there are people in your life that are just a burden, but are you willing to carry some of that Again, not to the point of destruction. You don't have to, you're not the Messiah. You don't have to carry everyone's sins. But the idea is, can you put up with a little? Can you tolerate some sort of sacrifice, some sort of selflessness in your life, or does it all have to be about you? But he goes on, talking about Jesus, for whatever things Were written before, were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So he says, Look, all this stuff, in this case, a prophecy concerning Jesus taking our sins, but in general, everything that we've learned, everything that we see in the Scriptures, it's there for our benefit. It's not just so that we can look at people in the Bible and hold them up on a pedestal necessarily. The life that the Bible portrays and teaches is the life that we, too, are intended to live, that we will be blessed if we take on and learn from the principles of the Scripture. And, as he says, so that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. In other words, can you tolerate each other enough Put up with each other enough because you believe that God is able to bring good? Because you believe that good things are going to come? If we are really pessimistic, then we won't put up with each other. But we can be really patient if we understand and learn from the Scriptures the fact that God is at work. That God knows what he's doing, that he works on people, that he works through people. If you lose hope in God, you'll very quickly lose your tolerance of people. But if you see people that are giving you a hard time and you know what God has done and you understand how patient he is with us and how patient he's been throughout history, then can't you have enough hope to stop Attacking others? Can't you recognize that God's hand is at work and sometimes it involves us just dealing with things and not getting so overcome by them? See, when we're selfish, which He is teaching against, when we think the world ought to revolve around us rather than to have the heart of Christ, which is, I'm willing to bear with others. I'm willing to put up with others. When we're selfish, life is going to disappoint us a lot. And the irony is that a selfish worldview will always make you miserable because you'll become so discouraged. Because the truth is that other people don't think as much of you as you do. Like, Sunday, Gail Irwin was talking about that and saying, you know, how I think about myself most of the time, and I usually think that you're thinking of me as well. (laughs) And it's true, that's the selfish perspective that we inherit, basically, from our human nature coming from Adam. But Jesus comes along to tip over that apple cart and cause us to learn what it is to put others first. And the greatest thing about putting others first is I'm delivered from that constant disappointment that comes when people let me down. Because now I'm not really expecting as much from people. I, I, I recognize how God can work, and I expect a lot from Him. But people aren't going to disappoint me so much. When you see people who are really bitter and really jaded And they've just lost all faith in human nature, a lot of times is the way they put it. Trace that back and you'll probably see that an overly selfish view of life is what led to that. Because I know your world revolves around you, but other people don't think that the world revolves around you most of the time. So when you think it does and people let you down... You know, you, you get in a relationship, and you think the relationship is great. Next thing you know, the other person doesn't think it's great for them. Now, how do you look at that? Do you, do you go, boy, I'm glad they found out, you know, because I, I want them to be happy too? Or do you say, you lousy, miserable, how could you, how could you destroy my life by not putting me ahead of you? See, and and that's what happens when people get bitter. And so, again, Paul is here going, it's not about you. Quit putting yourself first. Learn from the example of Jesus. And when you do, amazingly, you can be optimistic about the future. Why? Because now it's about God. Now you realize that God can do great things, and that can lead you to patience. Patience really, when I'm patient with you, it's not that I'm patient with you. Because I don't care how patient I am with you, you may never come around. But if it seems like I'm patient with you, I hope it's because I'm really patient with God as he works in you. And that's where healthy relationships can come about. That's where a healthy body can come about. When we look at each other and go, well... One thing's obvious, God's not finished with you yet. (laughs) But that's okay. And I'll give him some slack, and I'll wait for him to work on you. It's the thing that will allow you to have healthy relationships with others. It's the thing that will allow you to tolerate differences in others. It's the thing that will allow all of us to be the kind of body that God wants us to be, where we're not picking each other apart, not criticizing each other, judging each other all the time. Because I look at you, you're different than I am, and I think, well, you know, if God wants you to be more the way I think you ought to be, I guess that's up to him. I guess that's something I need to pray and and have him do it. It's not my job to fix you. And I'm not going to get impatient with you because I know it's really not even up to you to fix you. It's up to God to fix you. And so, again, as Paul says, whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And again, in the context... Jesus taking reproach, us putting up with others. Take a look at the scriptures and realize God's at work. Realize that he knows what he's doing, that it's really all up to him, and that can give us hope, that can give us patience, that can cause us to have an optimistic view of the world in which we live. And then he says, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, what a powerful prayer that is. It's a good prayer for us to pray for each other. May the God of patience and comfort And aren't you glad he's both of those? May he grant you, all of us, to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that we are to do, everything that we are to say is to glorify God, is to lift him up is to make him look good. And when we get together on that, powerful synergy happens. God can do great works when people glorify him. But as you see from the context, as long as we are ripping each other, we cannot in one voice glorify him. And so we need to stop tearing each other apart. And let's Talk about that which we agree on. We disagree about a lot of things, no doubt, within the body of Christ, within our families, with, among our friends, in our marriages. Hey, there are great disagreements. But is there something that we can all rally around? Is there something on which we can all agree? Because when you can find something that you agree on, Power and unity and joy all happen. You look at a stadium full of people that are all cheering for their team. Well, maybe the stadium is half full of people cheering for one team and the other half is cheering for the other team. But still, when you are in the part where they're all wearing your team colors, when you're out there in, you know, Manny would. When you're out there with the blue jerseys and the dreadlocks and you're all che- every time Manny comes to the plate, you're cheering for him to do well. It doesn't matter what the politics are of the people in that stadium. It doesn't matter of what you do for a living, whether you're wealthy or whether you aren't, whether you're employed or unemployed, whether you bought, the greatest tickets or whether someone just gave them to you or, or whether you stole them, there you are all cheering for one thing to happen. And it's a great feeling when it happens. Now, there are some people, and I just don't get these kind of people, who love to go sit in the middle of fans who are cheering for one team and they like to cheer for the other team. Orange County must have a lot of those kind of people Because you go to angel games and they can be playing a team from across the country and yet there's a bunch of people that come just to cheer against the angels. I don't get that. Okay, you know, maybe you grew up in Boston or maybe New York is your thing. Well, come on, you left those places for a reason. You know the East Coast is an awful place to live. So don't come out here and cheer against the angels and cheer for your steroid-infested team. I don't care about it, okay? Just, you come to an angel game, cheer for the angels. It's just... But there are people who seem to enjoy having beer thrown on them. And, And I've been at games where, I mean, I haven't had a beer in a long, long time, but there are times when I wanted to buy one just to pour, you know, because... Because some idiot's in the middle of, and they're wrecking the whole thing, the spirit of unity by cheering for some other team. (laughs) And I'm being somewhat facetious. But there are people who live their life that way. They just love to be contrary. They love to rock the boat. They just love to go to that, you know, Obama rally and scream stuff about his, his citizenship or whatever. You know, it's like, come on let people have their day. Let people enjoy things. It's really, find some people who you agree with and cheer with them. It'll feel a lot better than when you're always going against the flow. And it's not a big deal in politics or in sports, but in spiritual things, it's a really big deal. And And it's important for us to get together, to feel that camaraderie. And, you know, we're we could feel that camaraderie around certain divisive doctrines and just get everybody together who agrees with us. But the body of Christ involves people who have different opinions on a lot of um, you know, fairly serious areas of theology. And it's no place to be cheering for your theology. As Paul makes it clear here, Let's become one voice cheering for the glory of God. Let's become people who are united around who God is, around the gospel, about what Jesus has done. As much as we possibly can, let's let that voice be heard. Why? Because there's much more at stake than who's going to win the pennant or who's going to win an election There are people all around us who, if they can't hear one voice, they're going to hell because they're so confused by all of the infighting among believers because it seems like all we want to talk about is the things we disagree on. And so Paul's just going, quit ripping each other apart and how about you guys agree on the glory of God? And let's make it really clear that when it comes to Jesus and what he did for us on the cross and who he is and how you can come into a relationship with him, that, man, there are masses of people who agree on that, that this isn't something that there are serious divisions over. It's either you've accepted Jesus Christ and he's your Lord and Savior, or you haven't. It's a clear distinction and a division. And a bunch of other divisions that you create may cause people to never hear that one voice. And so he says, in all of your picking, and all of your arguing, and all of your debating, and all of your differences, how about appreciating each other's differences, accepting each other's differences, and saying, man, I'll tell you, there's one thing we all agree on. And that's Jesus Christ. And that's with with one mind. We've made up our minds. With one mouth, we speak it together. We glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. That's what people ought to hear from us more than anything else. That ought to be clear. Because that's what saves people. That's what allows people to pass from death unto life. And if we agree that people who don't know Jesus are condemned, and I don't want to argue with people who don't think everyone's condemned. You know, things. things, well, maybe everyone will get saved. Sorry, the Bible's really clear about that. Jesus said it himself, whoever doesn't believe is condemned already because they don't believe. He goes, I didn't come to condemn people. They're already condemned. But the Lord Jesus Christ, to glorify him, to focus on what he has done, that's something that we ought to all agree on. And that's something that people ought to hear from us more than, what church do you go to and what's your opinion on this or that idea or what's your political position or what team are you cheering for or whatever? Forget that stuff. Let's get together around our Lord Jesus Christ and his glory and people seeing that. And let's quit raising our eyebrows every time there's somebody who glorifies Jesus Christ but who disagrees with us on some lesser thing. Somebody goes, hey, have you heard about that um, guy on TV? And, you know, I think he's a Christian and, you know boy, he's getting a lot of attention. Man, every time I turn the TV, he's on there. And he seems real positive. And he blinks all the time. And resist the temptation to go, well, I don't even know if he's really saved. Saw him on Larry King. Didn't sound like he really knew the guy. Forget about that. The guy will tell you. And it's not up for us to judge. If the guy is preaching Jesus Christ, if the guys would agree with us, hey, I'll agree with you on this. I want to glorify my Lord Jesus Christ. Then that guy isn't my enemy. We can disagree on a bunch of stuff, but let's get our voices together on what matters. And let's stop having a voice of division. That's all I'm saying. That's all Paul's saying. And he goes on to say, therefore, Receive one another. I have that underlined in my Bible. Not a bad idea for you to. Therefore, if you do, if you underline, if you don't write in your Bible, that's cool. For years and years, I would never write in my Bible because I thought it was adding to God's Word. But they <laughs> <I> don't laugh. <laughs> I still prefer reading and studying the Bible in in one that's not marked. So when I study, I use a clean Bible. And when I teach, I use one that's all carved up. So I got both sides going. (laughs) So (laughs) receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. When you came to Christ, how did he receive you? How much did you have to know? How much did you really have to have down before he drew you to himself? If you're a Christian, there was a time, and you may not even remember that exact time. It may have been over a period of time, but he was reeling you in, and he was wooing you, and he was letting you know that he loves you, and you were starting to feel that you loved him, and you may not have known much. Um. And that seemed like it was okay with him. Some people, like C.S. Lewis said, he said, I feel like I was dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. Maybe that was you. Maybe you can't even remember a time when you didn't trust Jesus Christ or love him. But the one thing that's true of all of us is that when we came to Jesus, we were probably wrong about a whole bunch of stuff. We didn't know much, most of us. There are some of us who learned all about God before we finally got around to accepting him. But for most people, they didn't know much. And so he's saying, the way that he received you, you receive others like that. Be as picky as he is, and no more so. I like that. To the glory of God. Verse 8, now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Now he kind of goes into this these next few verses, he's going back to the Jew and Gentile thing a little bit. And the reason is because a lot of their division there in the church in Rome was between people who were Jewish Christians and people who were Gentile Christians. Now he's using Jesus as an example of all that because Jesus didn't come just to be the Jewish Messiah. We shouldn't feel like, you know, everyone else didn't matter, but he really came for the Jews, and everybody else, if they want, can kind of be second-class Christians. His heart was always for the world, it was for everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And so now Paul's explaining the whole Jewish-Gentile thing based on that. And he says, hey, Jesus became a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. So he goes, Jesus came and fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies, he came as the Messiah in order to confirm who he was. However, he goes on to say, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, and he quotes there in verse 9, David in Psalm 18 For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, he says, quoting the song of Moses in verse 10, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his peoples. And again, quoting Psalm 117, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, In Isaiah chapter 11, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. (laughs) So he says, to you Jews, absolutely. Jesus came, offered himself as the Messiah to fulfill the scriptures, but don't get the idea that the whole plan in the Old Testament was just the Jews get their Messiah, he, God would, he loves Israel. There's no doubt about it. And and I just wouldn't even tolerate anyone suggesting otherwise. But at the same time, he loves all of us. He doesn't, Gentiles aren't second-class citizens to him, never were. The reason he chose the Jews was so that the Jews would reach the world. Abraham, in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So he quotes Moses, he quotes David, he quotes Isaiah to these Jews who thought they were better than Gentile Christians. And he goes, they all said he wants to save Gentiles. The implication is, quit wearing your Jewishness on your sleeve. And what he would say to all of us is, quit hanging on to your own personal identity, your own self-worth, who you are, your distinction, quit hanging on to that like it makes you something special. What makes you special, what makes me special is we are in this world. We were created in the image of God, and God's heart was always for everyone. He doesn't love Jews more than Arabs. He doesn't love Americans more than Africans. He doesn't love Europeans more than Asians. It's the world. If you're a member of the world, he loves you. And that's why we're called to reach the world, because whenever he reaches us, it's with the express intention that we reach others, and especially that we grow, go cross-culturally to reach people who are different than we are. I'm not sure why, but it works more effectively sometimes that way. But it also reinforces within all of us that calling that we have to love the world and reach the world. And so that's always been the heart of God. If we don't do that, we become very self-absorbed. If we don't do that we become very ethnocentric. We become very nationalistic. It becomes more about saving America than it is saving the world. Now I'm as cautious as any of you are about this whole notion of, you know, globalism and, you know, having a one world government and except that I want to see this whole world united under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The politics isn't the answer. And, And so many of the things that people are using to try to unite people, hey, the world is not going to come together around global warming. The world can only come together around Jesus Christ. And so every chance I have, every opportunity I can, I want to find people who are as different than I am as I can possibly find and let them know God loves all of us. Because the message of this world is usually if you're different, you're bad. If you're not like me, you're my enemy. And that kind of prejudice is what's destroying the world It's it's the kind of thing Satan loves. It destroys a nation as well. But in every way, our vision for the glory of God is to understand that he loves people who are different than we are, that he wants to reach all of them that he wants to embrace them all, and he wants to use us to do it, as he wanted to use the Jews to reach the Gentiles, as he wants to use the Gentiles to reach Jews, as Paul discussed earlier in Romans, and all around the world. That's why Paul spent most of his life on the road doing missions work, because he wanted to get this message across. It's not just for people like me. It's for people like you. And so then he says, now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He said this whole mentality, it's not just about you getting along with your neighbor. It's about us reaching the world. And if you can get optimistic enough to trust God to help you to get along with with your spouse, then that's the first step toward us understanding we can reach the world with the message of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. If there's hope among us personally, there's hope globally. If we can't even figure out how to get along with Christians in our own church— much less with the church next door, the church across the street. What hope is there for the world to hear the gospel? But it's Paul's prayer, as he lays it out here, that we would get our voices together to bring glory to God as far as we can take that message. It starts with us, and it moves out from there. And then he begins to kind of share his own testimony a little bit but gets personal in the rest of this chapter he says now i myself am confident concerning you my brethren that you also are full of goodness i know you mean well filled with all knowledge able also to admonish one another come on i don't have to tell you guys this stuff you can encourage each other you can remind each other of these things Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles ministering the gospel of God that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He said, everything I've been telling you in this book of Romans is all about getting you to understand what the gospel is about and bringing more people into the family, bringing more people together. If you can figure out how to do it personally, we can do it in a much greater way, and and that's what I've been trying to do, and that's what I'm encouraging you to do. Therefore, verse 17, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. He goes, I... I've seen a lot of encouraging signs. I've seen God doing some great things in this area. Because, see, he was a guy who was building bridges. A Hebrew of the Hebrew called by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles, he goes, believe me, I have seen what can happen. I have seen what the gospel can do to bring people together in a way that is just amazing. And he says, I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. He goes, I wouldn't make any of this stuff up. He said, I'm not taking credit for what has been done through other people. I'm just telling you my own witness that as a guy who was as Jewish as you could be, I've been able to reach Gentiles. I've seen God doing great things. So, If that can happen, I know that great things can happen among you. And he says, hey, I've seen mighty signs and wonders, verse 19, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about, Jerusalem as the center and making a circle, to Illyricum, which was a province that was um, way north of, of Greece and Italy and even France up there. It, it would be present-day uh, Croatia. And he goes, that's how far the, the radius of what I've been able to do is. And if you get a map and you can see where this is, you see where Croatia is, draw a big circle around Jerusalem, you realize that pretty much... Most of the known world, Paul was able to go there and minister. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. He goes, man, I've done it in this whole area. I know what God can do. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. Paul's thing was I don't want to just go and preach to people who have already heard. This is just such such an important message that I really want to focus my attention on getting the word to people who haven't heard. So he was a church planter. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul was putting down ministering in the church because he, after he would start a church and the church was building up, and in some cases he would stay at a church as long as three years, then he would assign people to take over that work and he would move on to other things. But always when he raised up other guys to be pastors, he always encouraged them to move beyond their borders as well. So Timothy, though he was a pastor, was also at a heart for missions and was always going off on missions trip. Titus, we know, went even further than Paul did up there into that area of Croatia. We know Titus got up in there. We know Paul got at least to the border of it, as he said here. But his heart was, how can we carry this message to where people haven't heard it. And his justification for that in verse 21, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 52, and it's right at the end of chapter 52. And Isaiah 52 and 53 are just that amazing passage about Jesus and his ministry. And in Isaiah 52, he's, he's saying... Behold, verse 13, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, just as many were astonished at you. So his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider." So that's the verse Paul quotes here, talking about him taking the gospel out, specifically to the Gentiles, because even there in Isaiah, it was prophesied that this word would go to these other nations. What word? Isaiah 53, the gospel. Who has believed our report? The story of what Jesus Christ did when he gave his life by taking our sins upon himself, As all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah, right before that, predicted that this message would be carried to Gentiles, would be spread around to other nations, and anyone who takes the truth of the gospel, takes it to people who haven't heard, is fulfilling in that which they are doing they're fulfilling this prophecy that goes all the way back to Isaiah. So some of our team, uh, members who were just over in Hong Kong, and, and they were sharing the gospel with people, a lot of whom had never even heard of Jesus. They came and signed up for English camp, and they were told the story of Jesus, and They went through the book of Acts and, and they were given an opportunity and many of them professed faith in Jesus Christ where they these Chinese kids had never even heard about Jesus before that. That's what Paul's talking about. He's going, for me, what I'm passionate about is getting to people who haven't had a chance to hear and getting the word of the gospel to them. That's what matters to me and that's how I've tried to conduct my ministry and that's what he's saying here and at that I think we'll just break it off here because we're going to have communion and the rest of the chapter he's kind of starting to wrap up the book and talking about his plans he wants to come to Rome when he goes to Spain and we'll see all of that and probably get into chapter 16 next week but that's See how, and I love how Paul does this. He starts with our little issues. Oh, we're disagreeing on whether you should eat meat or not, or whether you should celebrate the Sabbath or not, or whether Christians can dance or smoke or whatever or not, or should I be able to have a glass of wine with dinner? And he grabs us by the throat and he goes, are you kidding me? You don't have anything more important to do than that? With your stupid division, you're keeping people out of heaven. I can't believe you think this is that important. And then he goes, man, what's important? It's for people to figure out who Jesus is. For people to... To glorify our Lord Jesus Christ, to, to understand the good news of the gospel and to see that get to others, that's what matters. For me, that's so convicting. Because so often I find myself spending an awful lot of time around things that don't matter as much as the gospel. Sometimes spending my time struggling with people who with whatever disagreements that we have, they're already saved. And here I'm trying to fix all their problems or solve all their issues. And for all of us, this is a helpful reminder that every time we are fighting with each other, that's time that could be spent spreading the gospel Every time a husband and wife are in their house arguing over whether to replace the drapes or not, that time could be spent talking to a neighbor that doesn't know Jesus. I mean, Paul's just going, where are your priorities? And this beautiful irony, the same understanding that can cause us to get along in our families, in our churches, amongst other churches, that can be the same passion that will change the world, that will carry the message of the gospel. The gospel, what matters, it's why we're celebrating communion tonight. It's what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. It's kind of like Jesus is going, hey, remember me? Remember what matters? Remember what's important? Remember what I did for you? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for the gospel. We're so sorry for the way that we have elevated things that are of less importance. And they've even gotten the way of the gospel. They consume so much of our energy and time. Taking things that that might be good things, but they're not as important as that which is excellent. We're sorry, and we repent, and as we we come to the communion table, we want to remember you. We want to remember what you did for us. We want to remember your body that was broken, as we are sometimes so overly consumed with our bodies. We want to remember your blood that was shed for us when, when we become so passionate and so... Obsessed with the piddly suffering that we do on this earth, most of us having not even shed blood, we've just got our feelings hurt, and we put ourselves on the shelf. Somebody says something to us, and we're off crying in a corner, and we remember your blood. The beating that you endured, the suffering that was yours on our behalf, and the example of our dear brother Paul, who himself was repeatedly beaten and stoned. We are such wimps. We allow our lives to be disrupted and derailed. We allow friendships to be destroyed over such silly things. Churches to be divided over such trivia. But tonight, we remember what you did. And we thank you. Call us back to a focus on what matters. Glorify in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.